Hello, and welcome to the April 18, 2023 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Derek Procell. Procell is a soulful singer with a big, hairy, baritone voice. A harmonica player who is melodic and tasty while playing down and dirty. A two-fisted piano player who drives the rhythm home. A smart songwriter who digs deep into soul and blues. Music you hear and never forget. Derek Procell is all of that. Derek was playing in bar bands before he was legal. He did his first recording as a lead singer in Nashville when he was 16. And that was that. He knew he would be a performing and recording musician for the rest of his life. Originally from Milwaukee, he's always been a frontman. For years, he wrote and performed with award-winning touring band Arroyo. Derek has logged thousands of hours on stage. In the 1990s, he moved his career into the recording studio. He's the beer voice guy. If it's not a microbrew, he's sung for the commercials. Derek provided vocals and voiceover for scores of advertising campaigns, including McDonald's, Chevrolet, Ford, Coca-Cola, and Kellogg's. Derek has been writing songs for over 40 years. Beginning with writing for his live performances, he later moved to studio recording exclusively. His songs have been recorded by the artists such as the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, Logan Daniels, Melissa Manchester, Big Lou Johnson, the Cashbox Kings, and Grammy and BMA winner Shamika Copeland. You have heard his songs on My Name is Earl, True Blood, Criminal Minds, Boston Legal, Saving Grace, The Office, True Blood, This Is Us, The Americans and King of the Hill, 
Procell's film credits include Lady Bird and the Netflix original Holidays. Derek's songs have been included in projects by the American Cancer Society, Music from the Heart, and the Children's Hear Foundation. He has also been the recipient of songwriting awards from the Wisconsin Area Music Institute, Los Angeles Songwriter Showcase, and Billboard Magazine. Why I Choose to Sing the Blues was Derek's first solo album of original songs. The recording was met with worldwide praise and launched him back into live performing. His current release, Hello Mojo, is produced by Zach Harmon on the Cat Food Records label. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Derek Brosell. Hello, Derek. Hey, how are you, Craig? Good to see you, finally. Hey, yes, it's great to get together after after having to uh, uh, change our dates and so forth. But it's really great to talk with you. I've really been looking forward to uh, our conversation today. You know, uh, many of my listeners, if not most of them, will know that Chicago is home of an electric style of the blues called the Chicago Blues. Mm-hmm. And many of us are also familiar with with certain icons associated with Chicago blues, like Chess Records and Alligator Records and Muddy Waters, Little Water, Walter and Buddy Guy and and so 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 uh, and others. Uh, what many of us, however, may not be familiar with is the more recent blues scene in Chicago, and for and for that matter, Southern Wisconsin, because we're not that far away. Uh, but would you kind of bring us, uh, myself and my listeners up to speed, uh, uh, is the blues still alive and well in Chicago and the Midwest? Uh, absolutely. It is alive and well, uh, as exemplified by, uh, you know, some of the current crop of, of people who are playing, I guess what you referred to as, you know, as that electric Chicago blues, uh, a prime example being the the Cashbox Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a brand new record out on Alligator Records. Um, there's some Chicago and actually Wisconsin connections there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Nosek, the uh, leader of that band, uh, hails from Madison. Oscar Wilson, the singer, is from Chicago. In fact, most of the band is from Chicago area. But they play that style of blues. Uh, people like John Primer, Toronzo Cannon, uh, Nick Moss. I mean, there you know, there's a lot of people playing that style of of blues here in uh, in the Chicago area. Now, I'm not in the city proper. I, mm-hmm. I live up in the northern suburbs, um, but uh, I'm I'm actually a Wisconsin transplant. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in Wisconsin, uh, moved down to the Chicago area. Uh, Gosh, about thirty years ago now, uh, mm-hmm. when my when my second son was uh, was on his way, <laughs> and I had been doing a lot of studio work um, in Chicago since about the mid eighties, and uh, you know it, it just kind of made sense to move down to this area uh, to be closer to work instead of doing that you know ninety mile mm-hmm. uh, ninety mile commute, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a daily commute, but it was often enough that it, you know, it got to be a little tiresome. 
yeah, I can understand. I know the, you know, the few times when uh, I, I drive uh, to or through Chicago and, and it's sometimes it's dicey at best, you know, you get, oh, yeah. <laughs> you get a traffic backup. I re I remember being stuck on the Dan Ryan for three hours, one afternoon. Oh my gosh. So I yeah, I count on them. I, you know, yeah. you got to just factor that in, you know, yeah. from my house, I, I live in Deerfield, uh -huh. which is, you know, a Northern uh, North shore kind of suburb of, of the city. And, you know, when traffic's clear, it, you can get, I can get downtown in 25 minutes, yeah. but I always give myself an hour plus. You I, know? Hear you. I hear you. I hear it's, you. Cause it's great. You, you can just, you know, you can't count on it. Well, I've got sort of a philosophical question to ask you. And I'm, glad, I'm really had, happy to hear that we're alive and well and, and, and going great guns, uh, you know, with the blues scene. Um, but um, is the blues a truly international style, musical style, or is it a regional style that is imitated internationally? Now, what leads me to ask this is I'm thinking about all the various pockets of blues styles within the United States that are still played. I mean, you got Mississippi Delta blues, you got Piedmont blues, you got West Texas blues, you got, or excuse me, East Texas blues, you got sure. Louisiana swamp blues, you got all these different labels. Um, and then I'm also thinking a lot about many of the uh, English blues musicians and blues influenced English rock bands. Well, interesting you you mentioned that because I'm going to go back to something you said earlier and and sort of tie that together. Uh, so, you know, uh, because of my age, I grew up in the '60s, uh, mm -hmm. and my musical, I guess, real real musical identity and formation happened in the '60s, which is the time when you know the British invasion and and all that. So, uh, there I was growing up in Milwaukee. And learning about the blues, listening to people like John Mayall and mm -hmm. the Rolling Stones and Eric Burden and the Animals and the Yardbirds at all, right? All, all of the mm -hmm. British blues who, who were playing basically American blues that they were learning from, you know, the masters, right? You know, Holland Wolf and, and Muddy Waters and everybody. And I had no idea. I had no idea that the guys that they were learning this music from were 90 miles away from me in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Literally, you know, I mean, I had to, I had to come to them sort of the roundabout way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I came up playing in blues bands called like uh, parchment farm was one of my early bands in Milwaukee. Um, and that's what we did. We played, you know, Zeppelin and, and, uh, uh, you know, Stones and John Mayall and Eric Burden and everybody. And, uh, you know, uh, then I finally, well, Paul Butterfield, I guess, was probably the first mm -hmm. Chicago blues artist that I, I realized, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is not too far away. Mm -hmm. And then in 69, I started going down to Chicago. Uh, my buddies and I would, you know, load up the car, head down to Chicago to the Kinetic Playground to see, you know, $5 concerts uh, mm. like Paul Butterfield. This was all one bill. Paul Butterfield, B.B. King, and Albert King for five bucks at the, at the Kinetic Playground. Insane. And, you know, finally getting to see some of these artists 
for real, you know, in person. And, um, you know, that, that really was the beginning of my musical education about mm -hmm. blues. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's one of the things, and I would say I'm, I was in a similar vein, um, you know, growing up in the 1960s and listening really listening to blues and not necessarily knowing that you were listening to blues because it was, you know, called rock and roll, right. Or rock, right. Uh, yeah. uh, British invasion rock. I mean, remember the epiphany I had when I finally found out a tune that the Almond brothers used to do that. I loved was state is Statesboro blues. I still love that too. <laughs> yep. And when I finally learned that that was not an original, by the Almond Brothers that they were covering a, a blue, you know, and I went, wow, that's really, you know, cool. I liked them even more. And uh, I think, uh, I think another thing that for me also uh, hooked me and I was already, uh, I guess I'd already bit the hook, but what set the hook for me, believe it or not, was with, with the emergence of the Blues Brothers on Saturday Night Live. I still remember that very first, that was like 1970, uh, mid, late 70s, somewhere mm -hmm. in there. And the very first show when they were on, and I went, wow, this is cool. And I started looking up the names of tunes and finding out who the who the original artists were and things like that. And I thought, okay, I know this is a parody, but, you know, it was uh, it was a way to kind of get, uh, get you know, like I say, set the hook uh really set the hook for me so yeah that's 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 really kind of cool there's a there's a really good i wish i could remember the name of it i used to show it in uh one of my my history rock and roll class about british blues and uh or as uh one talking head referred to the thames river cotton fields uh, <laughs> and and all of the you know because the british really have been uh, you know, top-notch uh, students and uh, imitators of American music of all kinds. Oh, yeah. They they took it quite seriously, I think, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, uh, and and thank God that they did because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it helped to spread that uh, musical form uh, a lot more internationally, I think. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they still revere american blues in in europe i mean maybe even more so than they do here in the states mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. you know uh i've been at the blues music awards the last several years down in memphis mm -hmm. and um you know uh, every year one of the uh, seminars uh that they that they have or you know panel discussions is about um how to um how to get the younger people in in the u.s how to attract them to the blues mm -hmm. because they're quite they're quite aware of the fact that they're kind of losing that audience you know mm -hmm. when you when you go to these blues festivals and stuff the audiences yep. tend to be uh a mostly white mm -hmm. and b mostly older mm -hmm. and uh you know so they don't you know i mean they they give out they give out uh awards and recognition for literally for keeping the blues alive mm -hmm. uh you know recipients uh have you ever gotten one of those no uh, keeping the blues alive thing uh i mean you you probably could qualify i mean what you do <laughs> you know what i'm saying what you sure. do is actually well, helping to keep the blues alive um and and 
you know, so so it is problematic uh, here mm -hmm. in the states. You know, I mean, there mm -hmm. are some of the, you know, and then of course there's the um, <laughs> what my what my friend the the owner of uh, Cat Food Records label, which is what my last uh, current album is on. He likes to refer to the blues Nazis, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is you know a certain segment of of the blues uh, uh, world that can only see it one way you know this this yeah. is the blues and it's a very narrowly defined set of parameters and mm -hmm. if you aren't in that lane you ain't you ain't the real deal you know i have had a very i had a very similar discussion on monday i was interviewing a, a young uh, uh jazz arranger big band leader she just released a new album uh last friday and they had then had the uh, album release party at Birdland. Her big band performed. Oh, nice. and, yeah. Oh, yeah. She said it was a lot of wow. fun. Yeah. And we got talking about that as is applied to jazz. You know that there's there's oh, people sure. that have a very narrow view of what defines a particular style. And ultimately, she came she came across it. What I'm looking forward to the day when we can just say it's it's you know it's music. Like Louis Armstrong once said, "There's only two kinds of music." There's good and there's <laughs> bad and good, good music and is anything that you can pat your foot to, you know, yeah. and, and we get all hung up on these stylistic kinds of uh, uh, parameters. Like you say, you don't, you, you know, it's like stay in your lane, buddy. You know, we don't want it. You getting out of that and calling it something else. Um, but, but even I, that, even that, uh, that Armstrong quote, I mean, good and bad are still, when you get right down to it, are subjective terms. Very so, much so. You know, so what's, what's good music to me might not be good music to someone else, right? That's true. That's um, true. But what, what I seem to constantly see in, in these people who are, you know, quote unquote, the, the blues or jazz Nazis or whatever, they seem to more or less always be the traditionalists. Yes. Like this, you know, like anything beyond, you know, uh, straight up blues from the sixties or whatever, it, 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 does, it doesn't qualify mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. in jazz, I guess it would be the, you know, if, if it ain't bop, it, it's, it's not real jazz. Or, right. You know I mean, right. um, which, you know, it, it's, it's really a disservice to, anybody who's making music in general. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, you talk about the youth element. There are a number of really great young players out there now that oh, yeah. are, are, are really, you know, doing fine. I know, like, uh, I don't know if you've ever run across him or know him, but Alex Smith. Oh, yeah. You know, Alex? Alex played uh, guitar on one track on my previous record, uh, which was called uh, Why I Choose to Sing the Blues. Okay. And we did a song called Who Will Tell Lucille that my songwriting partner and I wrote uh, shortly after B.B. King's passing. Oh. As a tribute to, you know, his main sure. gal. And like, who's going to tell, who's going to tell, tell Lucille, Lucille that, that B.B. is gone. gone, right? And Alex came in and played, you know, a perfect B.B. King style guitar on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was actually the, the one and only time that we've worked together. Well, um, I, I'll, I'll tell you, my, my Alex is a former student of mine. Oh, really? Yes. He uh, grew up here in Waukesha. 
I remember when he was a college freshman, because I was the I was the head of the music department at the U, at UW Waukesha, and he came to see me for academic advising, you know, because he needed to have know what classes to take and so forth. And uh, so I said, well, Alex, it's really great to meet you. I'm happy to hear that you want to major in music because that's what I did. And I said, what, what do you dream about? What are you, is it that you want to do? And he said to me, I want to be a blues musician. <laughs> and I thought, all right, all right. So what's your plan? He says, well, I'm going to come here, meaning to our campus, which was a, is a two-year transfer, but we teach all the uh, music major courses. So he got his belly full from my now wife, who was the theory teacher, theory and ear training and keyboard teacher. And then uh, uh, he said, then he says, I'm going to go to Chicago. I have an aunt that lives down there. I'm going to live with her. I'm going to go to Columbia and finish a degree. And I don't know if he, I, no, I think he did finally graduate. But then, you know, he got on, he was uh, touring with Biscuit Miller Right. They were doing 250 shows a year before COVID. So how, and, long, ago, how long ago was this? Because I'm oh, curious now to see if it was pretty close to when I worked with him. Uh, I probably got him in my studio here in 2015, 2016. You know, I'm I'm thinking, Derek, I really, you know, there's been a lot of water over the dam. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking it, it would have had to have been late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. When I, when Alex first, when I first yeah. met Alex, he was and... pretty formed, uh, you know, I mean, he could, he could definitely call up some stylistic stuff and, mm -hmm. and, you know, I could tell he had, he had some musical training, you know, he yes. wasn't entirely self-taught like a lot of guys are nowadays. Yeah. And that's not a, you know, that's not a knock on anybody. Yeah. Uh, I had musical training, uh, you know, piano lessons and all that. And, and, you know, I, I kind of stopped it at one point and now I can, you know, I can kind of look at a chord chart, but I, I can't read notes. Uh, I yeah, can't, sure. I can't chart out stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, I can very laboriously, um, you know, but, uh, it's all, it's all by ear. And, yeah. And uh, well, fortunately, I, know I was, I was blessed with some pretty good ones. Yeah. Well, I tell you, though, Alex was the kind of kid who came in and he had he knew what he wanted and he knew how it would, you know, he knew what he was going to have to do to get it. He knew he needed to go to Chicago. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you, if you're gonna, like going if, to Mecca, right? Exactly. Go Mecca. Exactly. And so he had it all planned. And then he, of course, he got on uh, with uh, Biscuit Miller and he did a lot of gigs and and any uh, I, I I'm not sure right now. I think he's down in the Key West area. I think he hangs down there. He's yeah. doing some club dates and and uh, one of his albums. Uh, I he was my first interview guest, by the way. Oh really? My very first one episode. Oh, I gotta one. I gotta look that one up. And uh, so uh, you know, and he had an album that he was inspired by uh these headstones in a cemetery in key west that were of uh former slaves or maybe slaves or recently former slaves and they had these uh, on the headstones not only the name but also these uh various uh symbols african symbols oh, cool. and he got interested in that and he was inspired by it and he wrote a whole album based on you know tunes based on this stuff but anyway alex was a is a good guy and yeah uh, yeah nice i'm glad to, glad to know that you you've known him but let's get back to talking about derek 
Yeah. Let's so Derek, <laughs> tell me what's uh, who've been models for your musical style, both uh, your singing, oh, wow. uh, your instrumental playing. Who's who's really forefront in your mind of being a model for you? Wow. Uh, that's a, that's a big, big question. Uh, okay. So, so you're a mongrel. I, <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am very much. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, look, I, you know, my record, Hello Mojo, which came out last August, mm -hmm. uh, was, you know, was, was promoted and marketed, uh, in a, in a specific lane. It was marketed as a soul slash blues uh, record and you know um it did incredibly well uh in terms of a reviews like mm -hmm. I, I was telling you earlier every review that came out in living blues and mod modern blues and blues music and blues blast and anything with, with the name with the word blues in it <laughs> even downbeat um you know they were all stellar five-star reviews um, and, and a few of them, uh, alluded to, uh, my singing, um, mm -hmm. you know, saying, you know, soul blues has a new champion, things like that. Um, you know, some of them even alluded to, uh, other comparisons like Delbert McClinton, okay. uh, uh, Greg Allman, mm -hmm. uh, people like that. Okay. Um, you know, and and through the years, even before this record, people have, you know, have, have commented about my singing in that way. Paul Rogers, uh, Paul Carrick, another, you know, blue-eyed soul uh, mm -hmm. singer. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really kind of where I fall. I, I'm, you know, I like to tell people nowadays I'm more I'm more blues adjacent <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than, you know, because just saying I'm I'm a blues artist is too confining. I think, mm -hmm. no, you know, I... it's 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 soul blues, it's rock. There's a lot of rock element. I mean, uh, you know, coming up, I was deeply influenced by people like Eric Burden, uh, Steve Winwood. Um, you know, those kind of guys, I was drawn more to the soulful mm -hmm. singer, Felix Cavalier from the Rascals, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, you know, the Righteous Brothers, uh, you know, those were my, uh, more my influences than anything else. And, you know, and then going back a little further, well, I mean, when I say, uh, someone like, like Steve Winwood, who was obviously influenced by Ray Charles, mm -hmm. um, or, or, I mean, you know, I, I was it his first, the, the first Spencer Davis record, or maybe it was the second one where, where he did uh, Georgia on my mind. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's a, and it's an amazing version. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, okay, wait, 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 this guy's what, like 18 years old and he's British and he sounds like that. What's going on here. Right. Right. You know, I'll tell you another influence that you're going to kind of, laugh at maybe a little bit but uh tom jones no um, no i is, i i'm not gonna laugh and I, I because i hear that tom jones when he had his television show for for a, mm -hmm. a, a brief moment there when he came out and launched into his version of lucille you know the mm -hmm. the, the, the little richard uh mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i 
completely lost it. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, he came out, you know, right at the top of his range from the first note and a killer horn band. And 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 I I just lost my shit. I was like, yeah. oh, oh my God, what is going on here? You know, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, this is the guy who who's saying, uh, what's new pussycat and mm-hmm. you know, the green grass of hope. I mean, uh it it was crazy to 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 for me to hear a, a white guy being that soulful. Well, and- I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel I'm right in your wheelhouse there because I agree. I think, you know, when Tom Jones was singing his more pop oriented kind of stuff, you know, that was one thing, but there were other times when he would just cut loose and yes, you could hear that, that real soulfulness in his, in his sound. I think one of my favorite uh, Tom Jones albums is the, his one I did in Las Vegas live. Oh, and uh he live he, he's he's just amazing we saw him yeah. at uh, ravinia here because my wife is a huge fan sure and, as well and it was like we got to go we got to go see and so you know we pulled a couple of strings and got some like you know fifth sixth row center seats mm-hmm. and it, it was it was just in, insane the intensity uh you know and he's still he still got it yeah yeah, I think I, a lot I like of those, to think I still got it. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, you know, I, I it's like I tell people there may be snow on the rooftop, but there's still a fire in the furnace. Heck yeah. That's the way I look at it. You know, yeah. I don't uh I, I'll be darned if I'm gonna act my age. <laughs> <laughs> and plus I'm immature for my age anyway. Well, anyway, thank you, you very much. But uh, no, <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Uh, you brought up about your new uh, your recent album, Hello Mojo. Could you uh, highlight some of the songs for us on that album? There was some of the real standouts. I mean, I'm sure they're all great, but you know. Well, you know, interestingly, um, w- one of the one of the very f- most fascinating things about that record when it came out, um, you know, it it charted on the Roots Music Report, mm-hmm. and it debuted at number two on the Soul Blues chart. Went to went to number one, stayed there for like seven weeks, and then stayed in the top five for like another like you know twenty some weeks. I mean, it That's was awesome. getting yeah, which is a testimony to the I guess the variety of songs on the record. Um, everything every song there's ten songs on the record. Mm-hmm. Every song got some significant airplay, enough to you know to to keep it on the charts like that. Uh, there was no uh, standout, you know, like this is, you know, this is the one or two singles, you know, mm-hmm, off the record. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is all that's going to get airplay. Uh, they all got play. That's awesome. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, I, I was just amazed at one point, all 10 songs were, were like in the top 15 on the, wow. on the singles chart. I know. I, I was like, wait a minute. Didn't this happen to the Beatles? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it was, it was kind of crazy for, for a few weeks there. Um, as far as the songs themselves, uh, there's 10 songs, nine of which are originals that I wrote or co-wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote uh, four of them. Uh, the title track, Hello Mojo, uh, the lead-off track, Skin in the Game, yeah. uh, Color of an Angel, and um, uh, what's the other one? Oh, A Tall Glass of You. I oh, wrote yeah. all, all four of those with my long time now, going on about, I think, 10 years now, songwriting partner, Terry Abramson. 
And I'll tell you a little more about Terry in a bit. Um, I wrote three songs with Bob Trenchard, who is the uh, owner of Cat Food Records. Oh, that that was kind of one of the you know part of the deal with the record deal was you know I'll, I want you to do a record on my label. We're going to write some songs together, uh-huh. <laughs> and because you know here's here's the sad reality of it bob knows that people aren't buying music anymore i mean they're certainly not buying cds and you know one of the ways for him to potentially recoup some of his investment in this record was to have some co uh, songwriting credit in case we get some airplay in case we get some licensing opportunities uh you know for any of these songs um so i wrote well actually i wrote four four or five with him a couple of them ended up on the cutting room floor as you know things end up sure. doing you know uh things just, that just didn't make it to the record one way or another uh and then two uh solo rights uh on the record and then one uh i one cover that i'm just so proud of we we ended up covering a kinks tune um uh i think it might have been the kinks fifth single Back in the days when they, you know, they're like a single like every other month, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, a song called Who'll Be the Next in Line. I don't ah. know if you remember that song, but it's an up tempo rocker. And like most of their things, uh, Kinks Tunes, you know, is based around a cool guitar riff. But I I always dug this song because it had uh the riff, but it had really interesting lyrics and really kind of different chord changes for those guys. Uh-huh. And so that song has always kind of stuck with me. And, and when it came time to, you know, think about it, doing a cover, you know, Bob threw a few ideas out and I'm like, yeah, that's been covered already or no, I don't hear really hear myself doing that. And I said, how about something like this? And then I played him my, my take on it. Uh-huh. And he immediately heard what I was hearing. Cool. which was kind of a, a a jazzed up bluesy version of it's almost kind of a la steely dan oh uh-huh you know with like an interesting horn arrangement mm-hmm. you know i'm playing them you know like silly little you know uh synth horn lines on it's going you know here's which by the way my silly little horn lines got turned into real horn parts almost exactly the way i played them wow that's I, cool i had a great well my you know my horn arranger was like i don't really need to do much with these except you know transcribe them and and and, and put them on paper for the players but your parts are great mm-hmm. um you know so i i do tend to think that way but as far as a favorite oh yeah yeah um hard to say uh yeah. tall glass of you i love uh you know bittersweet memory the song that closes the the record i wrote that actually for a music library project uh, a southern rock project but it really always had that sort of memphis style soul to it and and then i started playing it live with my last band and then we added horns to it and then it really came alive and so i played that song for bob uh when we were previewing songs for the record and he fell in love with it and said oh yeah yeah this is this is going on the record oh cool uh and it's it it is in my mind, it's it's a classic, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it really is. It's the people people have been reacting very strongly to that song for years now, 
it just touches something in, uh -huh. in people because it can be about uh, any long, uh, you know, long lost love, you know, it brings mm -hmm. up, you know, there's, it, there's the memories are good and bittersweet uh, of, of someone that you've, you've lost touch with or, or passed away or whatever. Um, so yeah, sure. I, I like them all. <laughs> yeah well i it's like it's, trying, to, trying to pick a kid you know it's not it's that's i i understand because in a sense they are they are your kids i mean they're your creation yeah. and it, it would be challenging for anybody to, to 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 pick them out and i i will tell my listeners i've listed the whole album and you're in for a treat you're not there's not a lame duck on, on the whole thing so all killer, uh, no filler, as they say. Oh, that's right. All killer, <laughs> no filler. I think that's a great way to, to put it. Uh, I am curious to know something more about Bob and uh, Cat Food Records, because I had never heard of the label until I became aware that you'd released on that label. And I uh, read up about Cat Food Records. It's been a recipient of Blues Foundation, Keeping the Blues Alive. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, could you talk a little bit more about the label and, and, uh, the production and, uh, and how they're promoting the blues? Uh, yeah. Uh, Bob formed cat food records, um, quite a while back. I mean, they don't put out a lot of product, but you know, the, the stuff, I think like it's, it's, it's in the thirties, the number of records they've put out. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he initially formed it to put out a band that he was uh you know in part of uh, playing bass uh excuse me um k uh kk and the rays kk being the female singer kk and, and the rays and uh they put out one or two records i believe on that label and then the band uh fell apart and he just decided to keep the label going. He he was uh, out of El Paso at the time. Mm. And one of the artists that's put out uh, a lot of records and, and, you know, a lot of recognition for those records is a guy named Johnny Rawls. Uh, Johnny Rawls being a, uh, I guess the, I guess the best term for Johnny is a Southern soul artist Okay. Um, you know, very much in the Johnny Taylor kind of uh, school, um, and 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 Johnny, you know, he's a hardworking guy, man. He's just out there, you know, clubbing it and 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 mm -hmm. you know, gigging all over the place. You know, he's got the the uh, the station wagon filled with with you know CDs <laughs> and records and, and just sure. goes from town to town. You know, and gets a pickup band and and whatever. Uh, but Johnny's been very successful uh since johnny uh johnny put out a record uh a duet with otis clay uh several years back and i think that record got a lot of recognition as well um most of the records or a lot of the records on cat food records were being produced by a fellow by the name of jim gaines uh, I don't know if that, do you recognize that name? No, Jim I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with Jim. Jim Gaines is a legendary engineer producer uh, going way back, uh, you know, into the early, early like seventies, I think. Uh, Cause he's, he's in his eighties now. 
Uh, he has worked with everyone from Stevie Ray Vaughan to Journey to Steve Miller, Tower of Power. He produced and engineered most of Huey Lewis's hits in the 80s, uh, produced the multi-multi-platinum uh, Santana record, uh, Supernatural. Oh, wow. Yeah, so legendary ears, uh, you know, huge, hugely respected guy in the business. Um, so he and he and Bob knew each other from, you know, from apparently from way back. So mm -hmm. he, he ended up producing a lot of these Johnny Rawls records. Um, the fellow who produced my record, Zach Harmon, is also a, you know, a soul blues artist um, who has now two albums on cat food uh jim gaines would have produced my record he produced the two you know the two zach Harmon records he would have produced my record except for covid was going on and he being in his 80s just did not want to travel yeah understood and, and bob uh likes to do things you know uh, the way he the way he has successfully done them he uses his band mm -hmm. the rays as his house band mm -hmm. uh uses this amazing studio uh about 50 miles outside of el paso called sonic ranch uh mm. they're literally in the middle of nowhere yeah like, no kidding know, <laughs> like, a, like a mile you know a mile from the mexican border right like uh you can mm -hmm. walk into mexico there um but it's great. Uh, it's like a residential studio. So so artists come in there and, you know, plop down and work. You mm -hmm. know, you barely get a cell phone uh, signal there, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that's that's what you're there to do. Um, oh, cool. So anyway, Jim Gaines did not want to travel. So he handed uh, the production reins over to Zach, whose album he had last produced and said, you know, you want to produce this, this Derek Purcell fella. And of course, Zach's like, who? Derek yeah. who? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think when he heard some of the demos that uh that we were talking about cutting, uh well, he told me. I mean, we we become really, really good friends. You know, we're like we're like brothers from another mother at this point. Uh Zach heard my stuff and went, Yikes, I gotta produce this guy. Uh okay. you know, this guy's an amazing singer and the songs are great and blah 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 blah. Um, you know, Zach won the Blues Music Award at last year's Blues Music Awards uh, for Soul Soul Blues Album of the Year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, there's a lot of cred going on with, with cool. my record and with the label, with, with Cat Food. Well, I, I love it when I discover, like I said, I'd never heard of the label until I started, you know, kind of doing some background on you and I love it when I now find a whole treasure trove of new things to learn. Yeah. That's what I, used to, I used to always tell, that's what I used to tell my students at university. I said, there's, you know, learning is a double-edged sword because the more you learn, the more you find out you don't know. <laughs> but the cool thing is you're going to never run out of new things to learn. You know, so I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring that, that further. Well, now that Hello Mojo has been out since August, let's see, that's September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, what, eight months now? Yeah. Do you have a new recording project planned or in the works? Uh, always writing. Okay. Always writing. Uh, in fact, Terry and I, uh, well, interestingly, we, we've we had uh, some 
resurgent interest in us as songwriters. Okay. Um, we had uh, we had our first sort of big time success as songwriters uh, a few years ago on the 2019 release of Shamika Copeland's uh, album, America's Child. We had mm -hmm. a song called uh, In the Blood of the Blues. Okay. And, you know, it's, oh, yeah. I yeah, heard that last night. You did? It was on, it was on Sirius XM. It was one of their, uh, uh, they had, it was one of their recordings of when they had Shamika in the studio. Oh, yeah. And she did yeah. that because in the blood of the blues, isn't that, isn't that something, uh, as I recall her talking about, a, about her father when he was needing a heart transplant and uh, blood and there was blood anyway maybe I've no, got i no i think wrong. i no i think you, yeah there's there's another song on her subsequent album uh shoot i can't remember the title of it but i think that's the one you're referring okay, to okay okay well you know i listen to so many things and yeah. after a while i get I, i'm easily confused but terry, anyway terry and i terry and i wrote in the blood of the blues as a sort of deep uh historical dive into you know where the blues came from okay. you know All right. uh from from african slavery on up and okay. i mean it's uh, terry's an amazing lyricist uh, I, i'll just let me let me be on the record saying he's okay. an amazing lyricist it's, you know the first time we hooked up writing a song um you know because we had worked together uh in in the jingle world he was uh, a freelance producer who uh who wrote some stuff that that some of these uh, guys that I did industrial uh, work for, uh, I would run into him. We did a lot of things for Snap On Tools, believe it or not. Okay. You know, and and he'd write these great lyrics. And so it had been a few years, and he came to me and said, "Hey, man, uh, you know, I understand you can you can write some write some music. I got these great lyrics." So the first thing he uh -huh. hands me, first thing he hands me, are lyrics for a song called. I will be your leather. And I was like, uh, what, 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 what is this about? And then when I looked at them, I realized, oh, this is a very spiritual song. It, it is like, you know, uh, with a little bit of a motorcycle-ish theme, biker theme, oh, you know, sure. I, will be, I will be your leather. I will protect you. Protect I will you. be there for you. And so the first thing we wrote uh, of course, I put that to kind of a classic rock Bob Seger-esque kind of musical thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I've since revised it to more of a gospely thing. But anyway, um, we actually got an offer to license the song for some motorcycle insurance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Great. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't accept the offer because I. I kind of. We both kind of felt that the you know this big company kind of should have deeper pockets. You know. Uh -huh. uh, uh, if they wanted to use our song, which they didn't. Uh, but anyway, that was a sign to both of us that, you know, wow, we we're, we might be good at this, you know? Mm -hmm. So we just kept writing and writing and writing. And one thing that we discovered as we write, kept writing more and more songs is that we both have a really strong social political consciousness. You know, we're both mm -hmm. kind of old hippies and, 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 so we ended up writing a lot of what we, we call uh, our artist activist series. We've written songs about uh, domestic abuse. We've written songs uh, advocating for gay rights. We've uh, written songs about, um, 
you know, uh, immigration. We've written songs, you know, all, all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, every, every now and then, uh, gun rights. I mean, you know, we, we, we just kind of, we just kind of feel we have to write one of these. Sure. And uh, so in the blood of the blues was, was written about that. It was a, a sort of, like I said, a deep dive into the origins of the blues where, where it really comes from. And, and, you know, uh, it eventually got to Shamika's management and to Bruce Iglauer at, at Alligator Records. And next thing I know, it's, it's being recorded by Shamika for her record. Mm -hmm. uh, you should check that out because I, I know you're, you're, uh, you know, being the professor that you are, well, you're yes, going to dig, dig the history. Yes. You know, within, within the song. Um, and, I, and I'm a big fan of Shamika's too. So. Yeah. So yeah, it's on, it's on her America's child album. Okay. And that album actually won album of the year and contemporary blues album of the year at the BMAs in 2019. Hmm. Um, we are currently tracking, uh, we have a song on the new Cashbox Kings record and it is a, it is a co-write with uh, their two singers. And it's another song kind of in the in the same vein as in the blood of the blues this one's called nobody called it the blues oh and okay. it's a, another historical you know thing about you know the blues back then you know was was the field hollers and it was you know mm -hmm. it was a way uh for the slaves to to you know be able to articulate some of their their their, their pain and their passion uh about their situation uh that eventually became the blues but nobody was calling it the blues back mm -hmm. then right right um uh we have i think several if if it turns out to be true several songs on the upcoming zach Harmon record his follow-up to his award-winning uh uh -huh. record uh i have a song with co-written with bob trenchard on the new johnny rawls record Wonderful. So I'm constantly writing, uh, and now I've got I put together a, a brand new band to uh, go out and perform stuff from Hello Mojo and uh, other originals, some of which were on my uh, uh, Why I Choose to Sing the Blues record, and some of them are just things that need to probably end up on my next record. I don't know oh, cool. when when that will happen. There, there's still no plans yet to actually go formally. You know, I'm sitting in my little, you know, home demo studio. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I put I put a lot of work into the craft of uh, putting the songs together uh, even before they get out into the world for anybody to hear, you know, I, I, I'm just kind of that way. I'm protective of the songs. Uh, you know, I, I don't want it to get out into the world until it's, you know, ready it, until it's presentation ready. I understand. I understand. And then even then, you know, uh, it's going to change some, I mean, even the, you know, the demos for a lot of the stuff on hello mojo evolved in the studio. Once we started working on them with, with the sure. band. Yeah, because because you know if you're working with other, with good side people, they're going to have input. You know, in terms oh, yeah. of hey man, how about if we try the bass line this way, or let me try this rhythm this way. Yeah, I mean that's the beauty of working with really great musicians. 
Derek, what I'm really curious to know about now that you've talked about, you know, working with a lyricist, mm-hmm. when you write a, a, a song from a set of lyrics that are, is given to you, what seems to be the first thing that comes to your musical mind? Is it a melody, a rhythm, maybe a vamp, chord changes, or what What? What uh, fires off in your head when you see a new lyric for the first time? Um, it, it does change, but generally speaking, I, you know, I, I try to build things from the ground up, mm-hmm. you know, as, as uh, my wife, who actually is, is a, uh, a music educator herself, mm-hmm. um, you know, she, she, she's, she once pointed out the major difference in the way we both listen to music. She goes, I listen to music from the top down. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to the listening to the the lyric and the melody, mm-hmm. and you, meaning me, you listen from the ground up. You're listening to the the, mm-hmm. the foundation of it, the groove, the chord changes, the you know, and and I think that says a lot about the way I approach putting a song together. Okay, um, you know, uh, but it can be, uh, you know, sometimes it it it. I'll work it backwards, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll 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 have the hook mm-hmm. uh, in in my head. I'm hearing the melody, and and then I gotta I gotta kind of back up and and work work the music sure. up to that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd say generally, like I'm working on a brand new song right now. Uh, it's actually a song by request from uh, the drummer with the Phantom Blues Band. Mm-hmm. Um, we submitted some songs to, to them and he gave us very specific instructions. He said, write me a song, uh, a Stax like song, uh, about being in love. And he even went, Oh, wait a minute. Here's your title. Oh, to be in love. And, <laughs> and, and I wanted at, at 125, uh, BPM. Uh-huh. So that's pretty pretty freaking specific, right? Yeah. Here's yeah, yeah, here's yeah. your title. Here's here's the musical styling and here's the here's the the beats per minute. <laughs> so so I've been like trying to it, it, what's funny is I I'm right now just kind of piecing that together and what I've got I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I will do it at 125, but I'm going this would be so much more effective a little slower, <laughs> you okay. know, it just, it feels a little too pushy to me. I understand, you know, uh, but I'm, I'm going to give it to him at 125 and cause I'm going to give him, well, you know, when somebody tells you specifically like that, um, you, you know, you try, you try to give them what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, t- uh, Terry's lyrics are almost always in a format rhythmically mm-hmm. you know i mean just you know the first time i read them down i'm almost always getting a you know or, mm-hmm. or whatever i can i can already get you know the rhythmic pulse of it uh there's a few times when when I, you know i've been a little 
you know, missing the <laughs> missing the target that way. Yes. Uh, who will tell Lucille? Uh, interestingly enough, was uh, one of the few times I I really missed the mark. You know, he oh. gave me those lyrics, and I came up with something. You know, it was minor keyed, but the feel was really not what what it eventually became. And Terry said, "Yeah, this is nice, but uh, you know, I, I'm thinking something like this." And then he sent me an example of what he what he meant because before that, you know, he he hadn't. So I was just on my on my own. And what he sent me was this mournful thing with this loping kind of uh, you know stroll kind of feel, mm -hmm. right? And as soon as I heard it, I didn't even need to listen much past you know, the first few bars. I went, oh, well, hell, okay. Now I, yeah, I get it. I, this, yeah, boop, back to the drawing board. Yeah. And, and then it became the hit that it became. Um, but most of the time, I, I'm really on the same page and, and I get uh, the, uh, the, I get the musical underpinning of, of, you know of where he's coming from lyrically okay all right well i you know i i've, I've talked to of course a numerous singer songwriters and composers and uh, one of the questions that uh that are things that always come up is uh you know when you see a, a particular set of words do you already have a musical thought in other words the idea of of musical thinking uh being there in our you know our cognitive side of and, and being stimulated by either a set of words or an image or or a mood you know that kind of thing and and of course <laughs> i get a different answer from everyone i ask but i always well, sure find, i always find that to be kind of fascinating about you know musical musical thinking okay well you mentioned earlier that you just now put another band together to, to yeah. play out so where have you got any gigs lined up coming up soon that we might check out uh yeah we are um let's see the next the next big one is uh may 20th saturday night uh i am headlining what they're calling a blues weekend uh at the Rao center for the arts in crystal lake illinois Oh yeah, just I know a, where Crystal just, Lake just, is. Just across the border. Yeah. Come on, come on down. I'll put you on the guest list. All right. Um, it's gonna be a great show. It's a whole weekend, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Thursday, I believe, is uh Ernie Watts is gonna be there doing a, uh -huh. a clinic, and then Friday night it's Corky Siegel and Ernie Watts uh okay. doing a show, and then on Saturday night, I'm I'm the headliner with my new band um it's a beautiful renovated old theater holds about i don't know 700 or seven something 750 uh so we want to get some butts in the seats so it doesn't look so okay. empty <laughs> well uh, I, you know what i'll check with tickets the, uh, i'll yeah, check tickets with the boss sale. yeah i'll check with the boss and see if we can shake loose yeah let me know let me know i, I yeah. will definitely put you on the guest list uh but it, yeah, I've got a brand new band. Uh, my only holdover from my last band is Mitch the Lip Goldman on uh, trumpet and uh, vocals and some occasional guitar and percussion. He's my he's my utility man. Uh, 
uh, Tom Shoes Trinka on saxophone. Um, uh, I've got a great rhythm section of uh, Todd Lazar and Rob Davis, who I play in a number of tribute shows. I still do a number of cover things as well. Um, and uh, they're they're like they they play together like Sly and Robbie, you know. They're they're just like a unit. And uh, uh, Darren J. Fallis on guitar, who himself is is a blues artist. Um, and uh, let's see who else. Uh, R. J. Katke on keys, mm-hmm. and uh, Meredith Colby and. Uh, Carla Beard Leroy on background vocals. And, uh, you know, I want to, I want to be able to really represent the music from Hello Mojo. And it's, you know, you've heard the record. It's, Mm -hmm. it's big time, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, the Jim Gaines, he actually ended up mixing the record, even though he didn't produce it. And that's why it sounds as amazing as it does uh, Mm -hmm. sonically. It's just, you know, it's crazy how good it sounds. Um, now there's, you know, a lot of horns on that record and only two horns is, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to cover, you know, a pretty big horn section with only two horns, but you know, it's better than nothing. I hear Uh, you. I hear you. Uh, we, I may even add a dedicated percussionist because, you know, as you heard on the record, there's a lot of percussion, uh, on there and, you know, there's an award-winning percussionist on the record. That's mm-hmm. a fellow by the name of Munyungo Jackson, who is a, a good friend of Zach Harmon's, who, you know, did all of his stuff uh, at his studio in Los Angeles. So, you know, it's the way the way records are made these days. People yeah. fly people fly the tracks in, you know. Oh, yeah. It's the way, the way it goes anymore. And Munyungo yeah. is, a, you know, amazing guy. I mean, he toured the world with Stevie Wonder. So oh, let's wow. just you know, wow. stop there. <laughs> So anyway, that's our, that's our next show. Uh, okay. I, I'm actually doing a show this Saturday uh, in um, Arlington Heights, and it is I become Joe Cocker for a whole night. Oh, how fun! Yeah, we're 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 doing uh, the the whole first set is uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Oh boy, you know the live set with with uh, a lot of his famous stuff you know uh-huh. delta lady and and uh feeling all right and blah 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 oh, yeah. and then the second set is you know the rest of his career stuff oh, you know wonderful. like like uh unchain my heart and up where we belong and all that good stuff wow. and yeah i love channeling joe i also do a van morrison tribute night oh cool and uh you know both both blue-eyed soul singers see this, this yeah. is where i this is where i fall you know that that's that's my wheelhouse. I hear you, blue-eyed soul. Yeah, and there sure there have been some good ones, and I, oh, I yeah. think Joe Cocker is. Uh, yeah, I still I still contend Joe Cocker's version of uh, with a little help from my friends is far better than the Beatles original. But that's my opinion. It's soulful. It's <laughs> yes, soulful, man. I well, agree. you know, and and yeah, I mean, you know, he didn't write anything. No, you know, he was just one of the great song interpreters of all time. Mm-hmm. You know what what he would do to, like you said, I mean, he would take uh, a Beatles song and completely make it his own. Yeah, you know, or feeling all right. I mean, you know, I love traffic. Yeah, but 
you know, the Dave Mason version's nice, but the Joe Cocker version, you know, that that's got it going on. I couldn't agree more. That's awesome. And, well, Der uh, uh, well, Derek, I, I just have a couple more questions. Okay, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll wrap things up. But I, uh, I suppose this is a fantasy question. If you could perform with any artist <laughs> you have never performed with, living or dead, who would that artist be, and why? Oh, well, one leaps. Sorry, I had to get a little drink here. Um, Not a problem. One leaps to mind almost immediately, and that's Bonnie Raitt. Oh, okay. Um, ever since I fell in love with Bonnie Raitt, like literally from her first album, I mean, a former girlfriend of mine was a, you know, turned me on to her, and I've been a huge, huge fan ever since. And I've always thought to myself, man, if I ever had the chance, you know, play keyboards with her and, and, you know, sing with her and maybe blow some harmonica, you know, uh, I would be in heaven because yeah. she, it, she is to me the ultimate song. I, mean, I hate to use the word stylist. Cause you know, it's just, it's like a hairstylist, you know, yeah, uh, but you. she is, I mean, yeah. You know, yes, she writes her own, but I mean, she has also been like, you know, like what Joe did too. You know, she mm -hmm. would take someone else's song and then just make it her own. And the soul that she puts into it, uh, it would be an honor to 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 work alongside okay. Bonnie. Well, I was I was really pleased when I learned that she uh, won a Grammy this year. Oh yeah, and especially when you consider the other people who were nominated, and I right? uh, thought, oh, isn't that great that they're recognizing her? You know, yeah. so that's well, awesome. it's it shocked and surprised quite a few people. That's what I understand. I understand. Well, Derek, the really the last question I have to ask you is kind of uh, you know I want to make sure that we don't sweep anything under the rug, and I always include this. I try to be as thorough as possible, but I'm only human. So, I is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Ah, uh, not really. I mean, uh, you you're pretty thorough, my friend. <laughs> well, I'll take that as a compliment. I I, I, I would. I would urge your listeners to to go to my website. Uh, you can go to uh, well, actually, hellomojo.net. Okay, we'll we'll get you there. I mean, it, it, my actual site is derekprosellmusic.com, but uh, hello mojo is a lot easier to spell. <laughs> yeah. so, so I bought that domain, uh, hellomojo.net, and and if you go to the site. Um, it's got my music. You can listen to it. You can download it there. You can buy it there. Uh, it's got my upcoming shows. It's got my merch. It's got some really cool Hello Mojo merch. It's got, uh, uh, you know, kind of everything that, that you'd want to know. It's got uh, videos, uh, actually two songs from Hello Mojo we did videos for. Okay. Uh, you know, that uh, I'm pretty, pretty pleased with and uh yeah uh go to the website and, right. and you know spread spread the word and friend me on facebook and you know all that stuff i'm, I'm trying to trying to grow grow the masses you know sure. 
Well, and Derek, I will tell you and remind my audience that I do include links to your website and your Facebook page in my show notes uh, cool. uh, for the uh, musical universe of Professor Hurst. And uh, those get posted on my Facebook page for the show. And uh, so they should have easy access to learn more about you. And I certainly want to encourage my listeners to do so. Uh, but Derek, uh, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And I want to uh, wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. I thank you so much for having me on the show and for giving me a little airtime to talk about the music. And I hope to hear uh, from some of your listeners uh, if they make it to the show in Crystal Lake. And they, I would invite them to come up and say hi uh, after the show. I'll, you know, I'll probably be doing a little meet and greet and all that. So all right. if they let me know that they that they heard me on your show, that would be really cool. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. All right. Well, you take care and have a great rest of your day. Outstanding. Thank you. All right. My discovery composer of the week is Lorenzo Porosi, born in Tortona, December 20th, 1872. He died in Rome, December 12th, 1956. After attending the conservatories of Rome and Milan, he went to Regensburg in 1893 to study church music with Haberl. He was made choir master of St. Marco, Venice, in 1894, ordained a priest in 1895, and appointed music director of the Cappella Sistina in 1898. Meanwhile, he was becoming widely known as a conductor of his own oratorios. An acute spiritual crisis, the culmination of eight years of growing psychological disturbance, forced him to abandon his Rome post in 1915, and in 1922 he entered a mental hospital. In 1923 he was sufficiently cured to resume his position, which officially he held until his death. His recovery, however, was incomplete, his relapses frequent. Later intermittent musical activities were a mere appendix to his career. In 1930, he was honored with membership of the Real Academia d'Italia. Around the turn of the century, Perosi's oratorios had an extraordinary international success. Roland wrote enthusiastically in the composer's praise. Though his reputation waned quickly, the embers of his early fame persist, and it is not only Vatican interest that keeps his music in the Italian repertory. Perosi's talent was genuine, and his best pieces retain an appealing freshness and gentle spirituality. These qualities found their most durable expression, not in the oratorios, but in the best of his smaller religious works, often strongly influenced by Gregorian chant and 16th century polyphony. Perosi was the first modern Italian composer to be significantly influenced by pre-classical music. 
The once famous oratorios have lasted less well, and their eclecticism, drawing, for example, on plain song, Renaissance polyphony, Bach, the Wagner of Lohengrin, and even Mascagni, has often been ridiculed. Yet they contain passages which are persuasive in their lyrical sincerity and their sense of the numinous, and others which graphically illustrate the drama, whether the pursuit of the Israelites by the Egyptians in Moseh, or the sufferings of the soul on the threshold of death and transitus anime. Such moments do much to compensate for passages where the music seems facile and improvised. The All Music Guide lists recordings of 18 of his chamber works, 41 of his choral works, two of his concerti, four recordings of works for organ, 11 of his orchestral works, three recordings of his vocal works, and four of what the All Music Guide refers to as miscellaneous works. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube recording of Porosi's Etcha Panis Enelorem, performed by the Capella Musicale del Duomo di Milano, directed by Luciano Miglevaca. That wraps episode number 133. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be my interview with another Chicago blues man, blues harp player Martin Lang. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based jazz bassist Knox Barber, Minneapolis-based funk, soul, pop, and rock singer Mae Simpson, and Andrew Duncanson of the Chicago blues band The Dig Three. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank you.